Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite. This is AutoLine After Hours with John McElroy and Gary Vasilash. Episode 400 for November 17th of 2017. Hyundai wants a pickup truck for women. Watch AutoLine After Hours live at AutoLine.tv every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 12 p.m. Pacific. (laughs) You can subscribe to this podcast for free by searching for AutoLine in iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. Auto Line After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, your journey, our passion. And by Lear, a global leader in automotive seating and electrical systems. Well, Gary Vaslash, how do you like that little uh, Thanksgiving theme to the open? For the show open, I thought we should be wearing those pilgrim hats and uh, (laughs) Indian headdresses and, uh, but, uh, you know, sort of our Halloween approach that we had, but I think we're not going to do that. We're not, we're not doing that. Hey, we got to let everybody know this is episode 400 of AutoLine After Hours, and you're probably in on the secret. I know the crew has prepared something for later in the show. There's no secret, John. There's no secret. There's no secret. Just, okay. just, just, just move along. Nothing to see here. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that later in the show. But before we go any farther, we got to let everybody know Ron Sessions is joining us today from autotrader.com. And, Ron, great to have you here on the show with us. Thanks for having me. And our special guest is Michael Bryan, the vice president of product planning for Hyundai Motor America. And great to have you back on the show yet again, Mike. It's good to be here. So product planning, and you guys have made a big announcement. You're going to go hog crazy on all these crossovers. What, you, you got eight coming out or something like that? Well, eight uh, either completely redone or uh, all new nameplates. So it's a, a number of them are going to be some new nameplates. Some are going to be major uh, reduce of existing models. Everybody knows that Hyundai's been past car heavy, very short on CUVs. There must have been some sort of crash program in the company to crack, catch up that you got so many coming out now. Well, remember, as a global company, uh, we have uh, we have to balance our resources for all of our markets. And, of course, the rest of the world has been a little bit slower on uh, the CUV craze compared to the U.S. market. And so, uh, you know, our decisions have been more focused on balancing for the global market. And so we've had to uh, basically push very hard to get ahead of that. And, of course, now we've got the floodgates open. We've got so much of our R&D now focused on, you know, uh, creating uh, more CUV products. And we're also working on the manufacturing side to create more CUV production. But it, it's not like you guys don't have CUVs. I mean, you, you, have, you have a reasonable range of CUVs right now. We do. Yeah. So the, the Tucson has been probably one of our best success stories in the last, you know, five, five years in that uh, the number one complaint with our Tucson is we can't get enough of them. Mm-hmm. So they've won a ton of awards. Uh, it's an outstanding design, uh, has an outstanding you know drive and quality level, and uh, we just suffer from uh, the fact that it's so good globally that uh, even though we're building it in two plants, uh, we can't satisfy global demand. So we're, our number one uh, debate is how can we get more for the U.S. market compared to other markets that also want more of them. And so you're going to go all sizes. So you're going to go A size all the way up to full size? Yeah, if we talk about the bookends first. So uh, when we look at our uh, Santa Fe, our three-row model, 
uh, it's suffered because it's been more of a global size, which means we, uh, we develop vehicles for countries that have uh, uh, road systems that were created before the car was invented. And necessarily then those roads tend to be narrower and those products tend to be narrower as well. And we all know there's a number of products in our market where you could tell their origins are for primarily for countries where the, the road system came before the car, and so they tend to be narrower. Uh, there's plenty of examples of that in our market here. But in our case, uh, we couldn't achieve a three-across third-row seating, and therefore we couldn't achieve uh, eight-passenger seating. So the two key dimensions for a true midsize SUV is really a width, so you get a true uh, three-person third-row seat, and also you get good ingress and egress out of the third row because Mom and dad don't want to have to get out of the car and operate the second row seats for the kids to get into the third row. They want to be able to just jump in and get back there. So you want to have a good uh, access to the third row. But the other one's height, because to truly have access to the third row and good walk around, you need good height. And so uh, for this new model that's coming, it's going to be a really a true three row competitor, you know, very similar uh, to products like Highlander or Explorer. So it will satisfy the vast majority of family needs and still get a great fuel economy. Uh, so that's one end of the market that we're really focusing on having a really a dedicated U.S. product mm -hmm. uh, that's really focused just on our market. At the other end of the market, if you think about uh, the intersection between new and used. So last year, about 54 million people bought a used vehicle. About a third of those people shopped a new vehicle, but for a number of different reasons didn't select one. Could have been affordability, it could have been their FICA score, it could have been a number of different things. Uh, and, and so we see opportunity, just like we, we do with Accent, we see a great opportunity that, you know, you look at the entry car market, it's about 330,000 units last year. That's it's still a very viable market, bigger than any category basically in the luxury area of the market. So certainly very viable in terms of market size. Uh, the same thing's happening on the, on the CUV side of the market. There isn't really a lot of choices for people that are buying their first new vehicle or they're buying uh, you know, their first vehicle at all when they get out of school and get their first great job. And so we want to make sure that our customers have a choice. They get a great sedan product with Accent, and we want to offer something even below the just yesterday announced Kona that will satisfy an entry CUV need, something that's uh, got great design, that's very personal, but yet is very affordable at the same time and, and has the basic needs of a CV met. So is, is this going to be something, I mean, specifically designed for a price point that you guys are, are saying, okay, we're going to have this that will be so affordable that someone will not choose to buy a used car? Remember the dream of every product planner is to create something that's not available in the used car market. <laughs> that's true. And so we can achieve, we, we occasionally, we're very fortunate in our lifetimes to have a few of those. Uh, I think you could say uh, being first to market with uh, Android Auto and nearly first to market I think we were behind Ferrari, uh, Apple CarPlay, uh, gave us a real advantage in the market. You couldn't find a used car that could, could do what uh, Android Auto and Apple CarPlay could do for customers. And so that gave us a real advantage in the market and it brought a lot of customers to our retail outlets. And uh, I would argue the same thing with an entry CUV. It's something that you can't get America's best warranty, a brand new vehicle, something that's very personal and stylish. Uh, in the light vehicle market today for that kind of a price point. So, of course, as you move down the market, price becomes a more and more and more important attribute to hit. And so, yes, we do want to hit a very aggressive price point with the vehicle. And at the same time, we want to make sure it's everything that our customers are expecting from us. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. What are the, the, the top uh, features that customers are asking for these days? And maybe some things that aren't quite on the market yet. What things are customers asking for they wish they could get in their vehicles? Probably the number one thing that, uh, and it wouldn't have struck us, but there's a number of different studies out there, syndicated studies from J.D. Power and others. Uh, backup monitoring and, uh, and uh, cross-traffic alert, you know, basically warnings for uh, either side traffic or rear traffic and even pedestrians' warnings. Those are really the things that once people experience them, they can't turn back and get a car without it. And, of course, a rear camera now, I can't, even though now it's uh, regulated as a requirement, uh, now customers can't even imagine having a car without a rear camera any longer. Uh, so, of course, everybody will have that based on regulation, but, uh, you know, backup alert and uh, side alert systems are going to become really core features that people feel like they have to have in their next new car. Mike, what was interesting to me on your announcement about all these CUVs is, 
You're going to have a hybrid one. You're going to have an electric one. You're even going to have a diesel one. Mm-hmm. Why? St- I understand with the battery electric why it would just be a battery electric. But with the others, why have specific, this is a hybrid, this is a diesel, so on and so forth? Well, think about it just for a moment. When you think about inflow, and, of course, people that are planning new vehicles are always thinking about inflow. What are people replacing in their household fleet when they buy a new car? And uh, with CUV, unlike a lot of other categories, they're replacing a sedan-type product. So with sedans, they're usually replacing another sedan. And so uh, unlike the old days when I was buying, uh, I was trading an old sedan for a new one, the fuel economy was generally better. You know, various vehicle attributes were generally better. Uh, But in the case of this movement towards CUV, uh, I replace my midsize sedan with a subcompact or compact CUV, and all of a sudden I get much worse fuel economy. So when you look at uh, customer uh, feedback, those who have bought these products, and the large majority of them are trading a sedan product, one of the key areas of dissatisfaction is fuel economy. Hmm. They say, hey, I got this car. It's, I love everything about it, but the fuel economy is much worse than what I was used to getting. And so we think that diesel is a nice option to offer in the marketplace, and let's just see how we do with it. But it's something that allows us to get you know, a remarkable level of fuel economy, plus you get the advantages if you want to occasionally tow or haul, uh, you get those advantages as well. And, of course, there's certainly an image of durability that goes along with diesel. So Mm -hmm. you presumably offer a diesel somewhere else in the world right now? Uh, If you look at the Europe market, for example, uh, we have a lot of award-winning diesel uh, entries there. So just to be in the European market, you have to have a range of diesel engines just to compete. Mm -hmm. Uh, Still in Europe, uh, diesel engine penetration is over 40%. It was over 50% just a couple years ago. I still think it's in the high 40s. So it's still a core fuel type and a core powertrain type for the European market. So Mm -hmm. both there and in uh, Asia, too. So uh, interesting point of fact that our Santa Fe Sport, our two-row Santa Fe, uh, is only offered as a diesel in Korea. Hmm. So, and that's one of the top-selling vehicles in Korea. Our Santa Fe Sports only offered with a diesel engine. So, you guys do have a lot of familiarity. And keep with in mind that the SUV craze in, in Korea has been kind of slow, and there you have the same situation where people are trading their sedans for a CUV, and this is a countermeasure for this potential dissatisfaction for much lower fuel economy. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is the diesel engine penetration in Korea? I'm not really sure. That's a good question. Uh, I know I can tell you just in the case of our. Santa Fe Sport, which is considered EPA a compact CUV. I mean, market. is it about the same as here in the states? Uh, uh, no, I or, think more like I think it's higher. It's, I think it's significantly higher there. Mike, I understand early in your career at Hyundai, you you worked on the Hyundai Accent. In fact, you've got what some old ad that talks about it. I Fill did, in the blanks uh, here. I, I was a, yeah, I was a very young guy. You know, I had my hair was a very different color. A uh, very young guy. I just started there. I was, a man, I was a product planning manager. And I can tell you, it was 24 years ago. We've been selling the Accent in the U.S. market for 24 years. Uh, we introduced it here along with the rest of the world. And uh, I actually bought a car that was in our back lot for my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law was just out of school and needed something affordable. And this commercial that you're watching here was a commercial shot for the Korean market. And there you see that car, Airborne. Well, I bought that car. Oh, that very one? Yes. It was sitting in our back lot and had a, it had a roll cage welded in it. And, uh, and I asked our head of vehicle service, I said, what are you guys doing with this thing? And he said, and there were three of them because they figured that they weren't going to get this done with one car. <laughs> and you could see why after watching the commercial. And the guy said, oh, we're going to just have them scrap. We don't know what to do with them. And I ended up buying it for very little money. And I took it home, and, of course, there was a pile of the interiors of these three cars just in a big pile out in the parking lot. <laughs> and they said, just figure out which seats and door panels go with that car. And I drug it all home, and I spent the next two weekends sawing out the roll cage that had been welded into that car. And I was really amazed at that time because I had worked at Ford Motor Company for a number of years, and I loved my job there. And I was amazed when I saw the inside of this accent. It was completely gutted to the, to the metal. There was nothing but steel inside that car when I got it. And I was amazed at the build quality of the car. And I thought, wow, what a great car. Well, my sister-in-law drove that car for 10 and a half years after I cut that roll cage out and put the seats and the door panels back into it and never had a minute of trouble with it. And so uh, it was funny because we were just launching our new Accent just a few weeks ago. And I, it just, we were going through some papers, and I recalled that story. And I thought, 
I wonder what, I never saw that commercial. And so one of the guys in the room said, well, let me find it. And he found it on YouTube. And there it is. That was the very car. Uh, I can't remember the name of the color, but it was a lipstick name. It was kind of a, kind of a, a, a lavender color. Not a very good color, but a great car. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was a, yeah, I was a very young product planner then. So how's the, how is the new accent different from that accent? I mean, roll cage notwithstanding. Well, this accent, obviously, is, it's very sophisticated. Now we're using, you know, aerospace adhesives that give it great, uh, you know, crash ratings. They give it great, great NVH. Uh, gives a great structural rigidity. Uh, we've redesigned the rear uh, axle assembly. So now we have, we used to have uh, the shocks angled in such a way that the mechanical advantage of them was challenged. It was great for the interior package, but challenged for your good uh, ride control and suspension control. So now we've redesigned that. Uh, the uh, overall ride and handling is much better than its outgoing model. Uh, I think the design is fabulous. And the reason I say that is because Designers love designing big cars because it's very easy to get the proportion right, the ratio of, uh, of passenger space and trunk space and hood space or engine space is very easy to do. But with a very small car, it's one of the most challenging cars to design because guess what? The passengers don't get any smaller, so you have to maintain <laughs> the passenger space, but you shrink the truck and you shrink the engine space, and you end up with this awkward-looking car. Less to work with. Yes, and so it's a real challenge for designers to get the proportion right on a small car. And I really think, you know, when you study this car, it really has a nice proportion, it has a nice ratio of body to glass. It looks like a, a proper sedan. And it's something you'd be proud to own. It's not something that you'd say that's an entry car when you, when you walk up to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, you were talking about this uh, electric CUV that you got coming out. Yes. Jonathan Brown's got a bunch of questions he wants me to ask you. When, how much range... Zero to 60, how fast? Who else uses the same or similar battery pack? Front drive or all-wheel drive? What gasoline-powered CUVs will compete with it? Boy, there's a, there's a whole a lot of questions. If I, if I answer all those questions, we'll have no launch left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say this. We know very well that uh, we have to beat our competitors in a number of key attributes, and we all know what they are. We know the range. Uh, recharge time, overall vehicle size and capacity. Uh, and if you look at our Ionic Electric, we did an outstanding job in terms of packaging. That's our first all-electric vehicle we're selling in the U.S. market. Then the biggest problem with that car is we're sold out of them as well. You know, we launched it with the Ionic uh, uh, subscription model, uh, Ionic Unlimited. Uh, and so what that means is, is that, you know, we, we talked to a number of millennials. Remember, millennials are going to be the number one consumer buyer group for new light vehicles by 2020. So just a couple years away. Yeah. So the boomers, you know, me, my buyer group, we're going to decline. And the number one buyer group in terms of age cohort is going to be millennials. I think what you're saying there is very important because there's this perception out there that millennials don't buy cars and they're never going to buy cars. And you're saying they're buying them a little bit later, but they're coming on strong because guess what? They're going to have families and they're going to live in places where you have to have your own car. So they're coming a little bit later, but they're going to be coming on strong. And every forecasting service suggests that they will be the number one buying group by the end of this decade. And so when we talk to those, those folks, you know what they all say? They say the same thing at one time or another during our discussions. You know, when I go to this phone store, I scratch my, my name one time, and I swipe my card one time, and I get the phone, I get a technology upgrade after a year, I can get it, you know, when I drop it in the lake, I get it replaced, for, you know, I can buy the warranty. I get all these features with one stroke of my hand and one swipe of my card, but with the car, I've got to do all these different things, and I've got to talk to some insurance uh, person. I've got to talk to the uh, Department of Motor Vehicles. I've got to do all these different things. And why is it so difficult to buy a car? And so with the Ionic Unlimited, which we've uh, run as a test market in the state of California, uh, basically you go in and everything's included. Uh, now, we tried to get insurance in the deal. We couldn't because of a lot of regulatory issues, but we're still working on it. We're going to hopefully overcome them. But the fuel is included. The maintenance is included. You know, the warranty is included for the life of the lease. There's basically two ways to order it. You can go on Hyundai.com and you can see how you order it. It's two ways. There's a low trim and a high trim. So there's two, one payment or the other payment. And you basically do most of the paperwork online at home. And then you go into the dealer and finish it and drive off with your car. And that's been very well received and so well received we didn't understand the demand and we've sold out. So we have to now, you know, work for more uh, capacity there just like Tucson. 
Is this for the EV or for this the... This is the Ionic EV. It's just available in the EV, EV. product. Uh, we're just launching the plug-in hybrid right now, and of course the hybrid's been available from mm -hmm. the beginning, this year, early this year. Uh, so we've learned a little bit with that, with the, uh, with the uh, EV CUV that's coming. Uh, we're really focusing on the kind of a car that can displace a gasoline product in a customer's garage. And that's been the big challenge of EV products up till now. They've tended to be additional vehicles in the household fleet, basically a toy. You know, that it still can't displace the vehicle that you drive every day. Uh, and so we want to create a vehicle that can, can displace that gasoline vehicle in the household. So range, recharge time, overall versatility and size are going to be important. So uh, not sure what our competitors' plans are, but we're hoping we'll be the first uh, you know, non-luxury CUV in the market that's uh, pure electric. I hope we could uh, get it done by then. Uh, to answer uh, some of the questions, you know, we're going to have it done by the end of next year. So by the end of 2018, this, this product should be on sale. Uh, it's going to be a very competitive size. It's going to be a core volume size, I'll say that much. It's not going to be a niche volume size mm -hmm. or a size designed for another market. So I could say that much. <laughs> uh, and I think you're going to find out compared against a couple of the class-leading contemporaries that's going to have better spec. Will it, be will, will it be based on the Ionic platform? No. Ooh, interesting. Interesting. Hey, we've got a, a bunch of questions coming in here. Maybe I'm going to shoot them at you rapid-fire light. Uh, Ramak, I think I've got that right. Ramak or Ramag uh, says, what about your fuel cell plans? Are you going to continue that, build the infrastructure too? Well, we are a car manufacturer. We're not an energy company. Uh, energy companies have been working at providing energy for well over 100 years, and it would be a little bit uh, unrealistic for us to think that we can get in the energy business and do as good a job as energy providers are doing. They've been doing this for a long, long time. Uh, keep in mind that, uh, you know, when uh, at the turn of the last century, uh, more than 100 years ago, the number one place where you bought gasoline was in gallon tin cans at pharmacies. That's right. So we have to kind of dial back a little bit and think about with every new technology or fuel, there's going to have to be a period where uh, we have to provide enough seed money for investment, uh, people to get involved and start investing in it. And then, of course, then the cars come and there's enough volume to support their investment. Uh, of course, hydrogen, the big question has been, it used to be the car. Now that's passed. Now there's viable cars out there that meet all the requirements of customers. And now the question is the fuel. And so uh, we're doing our best to make sure we have a very competitive car. So we're launching a second generation uh, fuel cell vehicle. It's going to be a CUV. It's going to be uh, in the heart of the market in terms of CUV size. So there's going to be no excuse in terms of what the vehicle can do. It's going to have the same kind of a range as a gasoline product, similar acceleration to any gasoline product similar refueling time to any gasoline product. And its success will really be based on the availability of fuel. And so like the current uh, Tucson fuel cell, we've only made it available in those markets where there's sufficient hydrogen fueling available. And when I say sufficient, there needs to be at least two fueling stations within the typical driving uh, radius that the customers are experiencing. Because uh, you know, when you have 13,000 gasoline stations in the state of California, for example, uh, if a station goes down because of an electrical failure or, or whatever, uh, there's always a station down the street. Well, when you only have a handful of hydrogen stations, when a station goes down, you're out of luck. And so we have to make sure that there's you know, enough stations out there for, before we'll sell a car there. So our policy has been we will uh, move in the markets as there's uh, adequate fueling infrastructure to support the, the so, so this would not just be a California compliance car? Well, we can easily comply with battery electric vehicles. We don't need to create a fuel cell. We need to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, there's, in spite of what people read and what you may, may have heard, there's distinct advantages with hydrogen as you scale up to larger vehicle classes. Uh, when you think about the powertrain power density, the size of the powertrain versus its power output, when you think about the amount of energy you can get into the storage containers, in this case, hydrogen tanks, uh, compared to, compare all those metrics to gasoline, and hydrogen, hydrogen is basically the same. So I can put a hydrogen powertrain in a Class A tractor and haul 
with the same kind of uh, you know fuel storage space requirements for the same range and the same power rating uh, as diesel. I could do the same thing with any kind of an over-the-road vehicle, whether it's uh, buses or uh, inter, uh, intra-city uh, delivery vans or big trucks. Uh, so hydrogen's equally suitable compared to gasoline for large vehicles. And as, as, I, know it, as I know it today, uh, batteries are very challenged in this area. When you think of the amount of battery energy that you need to move an 85,000-pound Class 8, 45-foot trailer rig, it's a lot of batteries. And then on top of that... Let's we'll see how many there are tonight when uh, Elon right, uh, yeah, refuels the uh, semi. And then you have to think about how long does it take to recharge a battery pack of that magnitude. Right. And, and when you think about over-the-road <laughs> trucking, it's all, about, it's all about uptime. What's the price premium of the current Tucson fuel cell over the, over the, the gas version? Uh, Roughly. It's a good question because we, we only lease the current product, but the next product will be the same as every car in our line if you could buy or lease it. So uh, it's, it, the lease price is not too far apart from our gasoline product. And uh, maybe the more important question is the price of hydrogen. Well, the price of hydrogen needs to be on a cost per mile basis for our uh, Tucson fuel cell. Hydrogen needs to be, you know, roughly in the two, I'm sorry, $9.70 a kilogram range to be the same on a per mile cost to a gasoline Tucson. And now the fuel is more expensive than that. Now there's a lot of projections from the hydrogen industry and other, you know, uh, third-party companies that suggest there's, we should be able to get there, but we're not there yet. So I think the bigger question is, is, uh, is how do we get the, the cost of the fuel? And really it's going to come from scale. There's not a lack of hydrogen. It's the most available molecule in the universe. Or, or I guess it's a molecule, right? Yes. Uh, would a, would, a, would, a two, would, a, would a hydrogen vehicle from Hyundai have the same powertrain warranty, per se, as a, as, as a conventional gas or diesel? That would be our plan. So we don't want to have uh, uh, one vehicle with a different warranty than the rest of our lineup. So the plan is to have a similar warranty with all our products. Okay, we've got a few more questions here. Uh, Dale Leonard wants to know, what about that pickup truck? And he wants to know, uh, will it get a standard shift transmission and or offer a diesel? We're still working on it. Uh, it's a very, very active project in our company's R&D center. Uh, probably a little early to start giving specific details on it, but we're going to do our best to give you what you want. Okay. Uh, right Knight wants to know, will there be a new rear-drive Genesis coupe called the Tiburon and use the V8 as an option to compete with the Mustangs and Camaros? Well... I don't want to speak to drive type or uh, either uh, front or rear at this point, but I will say stay tuned for a couple of months. We're getting a lot of questions about uh, the pickup here. Will it remain small with room for two passengers and a reasonable bed size, or will it be larger for five passengers and be like the other midsizes on the, in the market? Well, a couple of things. One is I'll say that uh, particularly our... Uh, the Detroit-based uh, makers do a great job with pickup. They they own the market, and they own the market because they make great products. For full-size. For full-size and even mid-size, they do a great job in the mid-size market. Well, now. only GM's there now. Yes, but but I hear that folks down the street from them will have oh, something the, the, soon. No, that's true. They do. The, they have something in the works. The Rangers coming, right. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so think about it from a different perspective. If you were to look at... Uh, for example, if you were to go to a Toyota dealership and ask them, what's their number one selling certified pre-owned vehicle on their lot? Most Toyota dealers will tell you it's a Tacoma. Mm-hmm. Now, so what does that tell you just by itself? It tells you that there's a need for something below uh, the current product offering, and Tacoma's a mid-size pickup, right? Mm-hmm. It's the number Canyon, one selling mid-size pickup. Very pick-up. similar to the Canyon Colorado, but yet their number one used vehicle is, is a used one. <laughs> so clearly... That, there's opportunity that, below that. It tells that. you there's some opportunity there. The customers can't afford the new one, and they're buying the used one. The other thing you can look at is look at gender for a minute. Other than supercar and pickup, when you look at gender split by vehicle category, they're roughly the same, you know, 45% female, 55% male. It varies a little bit, but it's basically the same. Until you get to pickup and supercar. Then all a full-size pickup's like 85% male. Now, that pretends that women hate pickups, and I think that's frankly false. What people don't like is they don't like how difficult it is to maneuver, how difficult it is to park, and how difficult it is to see out of it. So if you can, and everybody's got the same needs. I mean, I want to go to the hardware store. My wife wants to go to the hardware store. 
uh, everybody has the same needs. And so the question is, are, is, are the manufacturers providing products to satisfy those needs? And I believe that there's a big market opportunity for something that does the basic open bed utility functions without the maneuverability and parking and size and visibility problems that our current products in the market have today. And I, I would say resoundingly that there is an opportunity for something different. The other thing to consider too is that there's a large number of customers that are buying CUV products, but you know, on the weekends they have their active outdoor lifestyle and they're throwing muddy, dirty objects in the back seat. And then Monday morning they throw their baby in the car seat on top of all that mud and dirt. Does anybody want to do that? Wouldn't they rather put all the dirty stuff somewhere else? You know, and they don't want to put their kids on top of all that dirty stuff that they had over the weekend, their hockey bag and whatnot. So many, many CUV customers say, you know, I'd really rather have something that allows me to put the dirty stuff somewhere else where I can hose it out and keep it separate from my family and so forth. So I think there's, there's, I think there's just this, a number of different unmet market opportunities here. And so to me, the easiest way to fail here would be to just to make another version, another flavor of a mid-sized pickup, because I really believe there's a lot of opportunity somewhere else, and that's really below. Well, this is fascinating stuff. Mike, i got to thank you for coming on the show. I know you got a plane that you got to go catch, so we're going to have to cut you loose, but very interesting what you're just saying here. A pickup truck for females, essentially. Well, essentially. Very interesting viewpoint. I would say a market. pickup truck for active lifestyle millennials. Okay. Okay. We'll take that too. But thanks again for coming on the show. Great to have you here. Thank you. But right now we got to take a quick break and we're going to give a shout out to our friends at Lear. Lear Connexus offers a parental controls application with geofencing that sends notifications regarding driving behavior and location, including curfew alerts, acceleration alerts, and speed alerts. All delivered to a smartphone application that includes vehicle location, driver notifications, and a report card of driving history, including notifications when predefined geographic boundaries are crossed. For more information, visit Lear.com. Okay, we're back. Very interesting discussion there. You know, how you look at the market. It's, I, I love getting the, the viewpoint of a product planner and just trying to figure out... Well, where do you put product? How do you put product? All the stuff that goes I thought it was on. very interesting. I mean, when, when he's talking about um, those vehicles that would, would come in below the traditional vehicles in terms of price, that you don't hear many car makers thinking that way. I mean, they, you know, it's, Well, there's it's, a good reason for that because traditionally they were a very low profit segment, you know, but, yeah, but, but no the, profit. Or no profit, but the good idea was that it got people into the brand. Right. That, that that they wouldn't ordinarily get. Mm -hmm. So, and also just getting into a vehicle. I mean, have have you tried climbing into a, one of the one of these four wheel drive pickups? They're up there. Yeah, no, you know. it's hard to clamber in. Yeah, right. Or can be. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's the time of the program for Doctor Data. Okay, so um, this this one could be somewhat tricky because. Um, it's 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 technology oriented, and so I okay. think you guys are going to need to think very very hard to uh, determine what this is. So, Carmen, okay. please bring up the first slide. Okay, so we have one one zero zero one zero 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 base two. So, what is one one zero zero one zero 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 base two? It's a line of code. Yeah, I would say it's. The lines of code in an autonomous car. The lines of code in an autonomous car. Well, you're both wrong. <laughs> so basically, what? so basically, what that number represents is bring up the second one, please. So that's the number 400 in binary. So why do we have the number 400 in binary? Because the <laughs> third one, please, Carmen. The 400th episode of, so, so there you go. So I just thought I'd get 400 in there some way that uh, would be a little representative. So, and, and I'm surprised you didn't get the background on this one. Because well, what, you know, I saw when, the background. When Carmen showed me that, I thought, damn, he's, that, she's giving give it, it away. away. Uh. So, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's, that was the number for the week. So, so uh, show number 400. Show number 400. And so I think we even have another thing that, that Carmen Bring up that other thing that you, you and Katie uh, put together. 
Here we go. Let's get started with AutoLine After Hours. And what a week we had. I can't believe uh, what's gone on in this industry. This is the last show we're doing in this facility. There are three of you who are apologists for Detroit and have been for years. Absolute years. These, these companies have been so poorly run, they're bankrupt. Are you going to you're going to turn that around with my tax money? You think that's going to happen? You really think that's going to happen? Welcome to third annual AutoLine Detroit live from Woodward Dream Cruise in Royal Oak, Michigan. I'm Jim Hall, your announcer for the entire evening and guest for part of it. Your hosts, John McElroy and Peter DeLorenzo are here along with classic car expert Eric Carlson and I think my evil twin brother, but we can only hope not. This is Katz's Delicatessen. It's one of the coolest delicatessens in the city. And come on, we're going to go inside, show you a bit about that, and then we're going to get the show going. Happy 15th Auto Line. Show, Dr. Data. And it's time for Dr. Data. It's always the time of the show for Dr. Data. Okay, so um, this this one is, I was quite surprised at this number. And of course, got to thank all of you for having tuned in. All right. That's pretty good. Yeah. Man, we've been a lot of places, talked to a lot of people, and had a lot of others on the show. And I have a question for Dr. Data. You know, considering that, uh, that uh, commercial we just saw with the Hyundai doing the jump, I wonder how many 1969 Dodge Chargers, the Dukes of Hazard production company, crashed in the filming of that show. We'll have to look into that. It's a very, very interesting it's question. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it was a lot. I know that. I don't know the number, but and yeah. The show was on the air for, what, seven, eight years, something like that? Hmm. <laughs> That's an important fact that we need to get into. Yeah. So Carmen and Katie did a great job. They did. And, and, and congratulations to you for doing 400 of these things yeah, almost. It's amazing. It's amazing. I had no idea. It's kind of cool looking back. And I, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah, I remember mm-hmm. that. So, mm-hmm. No, pretty wild. Yeah. yeah. We've had a lot of A lot of places, a lot of cars in the studio. Right. So let's talk about what's going on in the industry, Gary. And I know you've always got a list of things you'd like to go through. What you got? All right. So, so one of the things that I, I found this week that uh, I thought was, was rather interesting is, is there's this company called Terrafugia, which was founded by five MIT grads. And they have developed a flying car, okay? So they have the, fly, the transition flying car, which has two seats, 400-mile range, goes 100 miles per hour, has a 500-pound load capacity. They did a prototype in 2009. They did the next iteration in 2012, and they plan on having it out in, in the uh, next three or so years. And but what I found interesting about this is, is not so much, I mean, that I mean, here's a flying car, and, and, uh, but that Geely bought them. Yeah. Okay. So here's Geely that owns Volvo. Here's Geely that owns the London Cab Company. Manganese. What's it, it used called? to be Manganese Bronze, but yeah. now it's the the London. It's, it's basically the the London Cab Vehicle Company or something. They they changed the name. No, the London Electric Cab Vehicle Company. So I'm thinking these guys are covering the waterfront in terms of of transportation options here. What do these guys know that we don't? Well, I'm just wondering. I mean, so here's this Chinese company that, that is, is doing this. I mean, why? 
because the next disruptor is passenger drones. This is yeah. coming fast. And they, you know, somebody got a hold of Lee Shufu, the, the chairman of Geely, and said, dude, you got to buy this. Now, why he would buy Terrafugiad is a puzzle, because the flying car thing isn't going to work, only because it's such a compromise between car and plane that you have a lousy car and a lousy plane. Exactly. However, I've since read that Terrafugia is working on VTOLs, vertical takeoff and landing, and we just saw a little bit of a video of what that's like, and that's where the, the passenger drone people are going. What do you think, Ron? You're a car guy. Do you think, uh, do you think that personal transportation by air vehicle will be the way to go? I don't know. My son just got his FAA license to fly a drone, and that's a, that's a very excruciating uh, process to go to get that. Uh, and I can't imagine every driver, flyer of, uh, of a flying car would, would have to go through that mm -hmm. to, just to uh, live the dream. Um, very it won't have to. They're going to be autonomous. They're going to be autonomous. But you know yeah. what? This, this, this no, I'm serious. NASA, the FAA, and the DOT are pushing this program. It's going to hit the U.S. in the year 2020, 2021, thereabouts, where they will start offering commercial service rides. They're, they've been testing the, these concepts since 2013. And, uh, in fact, there's one claim out there on the part of NASA that by the year 2030, 47% of point-to-point -point transportation, that's like getting in a taxi or an Uber car or something like that. You know, I, I want to go from this point to that point. They're saying 47% of point-to-point -point transportation by the year 2030 is going to be with passenger drones. No, I don't believe it. I just can't imagine. I mean, tr you know, traffic on the road is, is crazy yeah. enough. But traffic flying through the air, air traffic, that's going to be horrific to manage. It's going to be limited to 1,000 feet of altitude. The right-of-way will be over existing roads. And, uh, and they are developing. NASA has got active programs that it's funding more than one, to develop a specific air traffic control system for these autonomous electric passenger drones. So I, I just rem remember back, what was it, in the, the 70s? You, you asked, why would they okay. buy it? I'm okay. telling in, you in why. The, remember in the 70s when, when, when major buildings were pulling hel putting helicopter helipads. helipads? And, you know, how'd that work out? Yeah, not so well. Yeah. No, it didn't. You know, uh, helicopters, very difficult to learn how to fly. Extremely complicated pieces of machinery that require mega amounts of maintenance are very, very noisy and very, very fuel thirsty. The idea with drones is far, far quieter. They're electric. Very simple, especially compared to, to uh, helicopters. And I'm just telling you what NASA, the FAA, and the DOT are pushing. Interesting. So people would be aboard these things flying around. Yeah. In fact, uh, Dubai, the country or the city or whatever the hell they call themselves, the Emirate or whatever it is, uh, is launching a passenger service right now as we speak. They've already done some test flights. It's by a German company called Volocopter that has made their drone, and uh, with investment from Daimler. So Daimler, up until this point, was my, the only, one, only automaker I was aware of investing in this technology. Geely looks like it's the second automaker investing yeah. in it. In a big way. Oh, interesting. I mean, I mean, not only do you have the problem of, of, the, of the drones perhaps falling on somebody or hitting somebody, but you have this Cuisinart blade spinning around. Uh, they, they could be running into things as well. It depends. You know, like the Terrafugia one, you got, you know, exposed blades spinning. Uh, the Volocopter is not like that at all. So they're in it rings. sits all above in a ring. You'd, it would be, I'm not going to say impossible, but it would be very difficult for you to get your head chopped off with this thing. And there's, there's all kinds of different designs, too, some of which have no exposed blades. But... I'm telling you, uh, it'll, it'll probably run. It'll it'll run in a, you know all those Amazon drones that are bringing stuff to my house. You know that'll be <laughs> dropping off packages and things like that. And uh, so, so Ron, I, I want to talk to you. So, so there was a new Corvette that was introduced this week. The um, the, the ZR1. Um, 
So 755 horsepower. What do you think about that? Well, I think Corvette uh, buyers are looking for something like that. Who wants to be king of the hill? You know, yeah. who wants the most powerful Corvette? Uh, there are buyers out there for that sort of thing. My goodness, we have 707 horsepower Jeeps running around um, <laughs> that um, handle pretty well in a race course, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's called the, you know, the Jeep Grand Cherokee Trackhawk. So, um, that thing's a monster. I've driven it. It, it is a monster. It's cool, though. But, uh, you know, with four-wheel drive, the, the thing just hooks up. and It's like you're being catapulted off an aircraft carrier. It just hooks up and goes. So um, I think there's a market for this. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a nice segue into um, the next thing that's coming from the Corvette folks. Which the is mid-engine. The mid-engine car, which is it's, it's right, it's, it's right on our doorstep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the rumors are it's going to be introduced at the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, yeah, that's what I hear as well. Uh, so do you think they'll keep the old one and do a new one? And do you think they'll price the mid-engine one up around Ford GT territory? Well, that's, that's interesting because, I mean, right now, I, I don't think Bowling Green is a flex plant. And so um, they'd have to build one or the other. I, I don't know where they'd build the new mid-engine Corvette. I heard they were retooling that plant. They are retooling yeah. that plant. In fact, so, I, I think it's still closed right now or maybe just about to reopen. So at that price, would they sell enough uh, mid-engine cars to keep the plant going? Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think that there's a, uh, a continuing market for, for a, a front-engined rear-drive Corvette, you know, sort of the Corvette classic, if you will, um, in a lower price class. And who knows, maybe, maybe the Corvette could be a sub-brand mm-hmm. of, of, of Chevrolet with, with several models going forward if they found another place to build the, um, the, you know, the two different versions. Do you think the mid-engine one is the, uh, Corvette's answer to the Ford GT, that Chevrolet felt it had to respond to it? I think, I think it felt that way, you know, for bragging rights. But, but on the other hand, there's this huge unmet need of the of, of the traditional Corvette buyer. You know, the, a lot of guys in their 50s, 60s, and even 70s, you know, that saved up all their life, and they'll pay cash for a new Corvette. You know, that's the car they wanted. Plus, they like the, the 25 cubic feet of storage capacity in the back, you know, the hatchback. The managing car will probably not have that much storage space, mm-hmm. and it'll probably cost um, many, many thousands more than, than the, than the uh, than the, the front-engine car. So that, That's how I see it, too, that, you know, I, I view it as Corvette's got to respond to the GT, both on the racetrack and in the showroom. And all Ford did is they went out to Multimatic in Canada and say, here, you guys build the thing. There's other shops out there that could build limited numbers of mid-engine Corvettes, too, one would think. Yeah, I mean, I would think that, that the total build number for the mid-engine car would be far below the, the, the front-engine car. But uh, we'll have to see. I mean, uh, obviously, there's some high-performance Camaros now that are kind of moving into Corvette territory, you know, with 500 and 600 and more horsepower. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So we had Sean on the show several weeks ago after he'd driven the, the, uh, the Challenger SRT Demon. And so when I saw this new Corvette, I was thinking, hmm, so the Demon has 840 horsepower and the ZR1 has 755 horsepower. So I calculated the power-to-weight ratio. So the, the Challenger weighs 4,280 pounds for a power-to-weight ratio of 1.96. 1.96 pounds per horsepower. Yes. So that's, that's awfully good. <laughs> okay, the ZR... Anything under 10 is actually pretty good. So, so that's the almost Z, drone ZR, ZR1 only weighs 3,524 pounds, so it's 0.214. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing. 0.2 pounds per so. horsepower? Wow, that's breathtaking. Yeah. And the Zero One is designed to go around corners, too. I mean, the Demon is a dedicated right. yeah. drag race. Right. right. So, I mean, it's just like, you know, you, you just think about this, that, that you, you know, we're, we're coming out with these cars that, are just come, that have just such incredible capabilities that you can buy. You know what I mean? It's not like own a race team and buy one. It's... It's, have enough money, go buy one. It's the golden age for the guys with bucks, uh, guys and gals with bucks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, let's come back to this, but we've got to take a real quick break right now, and we've got to give a shout-out to our friends at Bridgestone. Okay, we're back. Gary, what else you got? Oh, wait, wait, we got some questions here regarding the vet. So Nebula1701 says, I'm waiting for a vet with an electric motor. I think that could happen someday. Well, it could. I mean, there's certainly hybrids out there. I mean, look at the NSX. Uh, you yeah. Know, 
Um, well, you know, and, and you reported today on uh, Daily about uh, Mary Barra talking about all these new EVs coming and how they have this new uh, battery setup, modular battery that they can put into a variety of vehicles. I mean, you got to believe that Mark Royce is sitting there saying, you know, Tesla has that ludicrous mode. You know, we'll, we'll do them one better. We'll... Uh, so that wouldn't be at all surprising to me. Right Knight says, if they make my mid-engine Veta V6, I will be very pissed. I, to me, it's all about power, though, right? And, and the way it sounds and puts down the power. But I don't care the, the engine configuration as long as I get the performance. Right. That's me. You know, and the sound, as we learned um, talking to the Mustang guys, you know, you can synthesize some of that and you can feel very happy to hear it. And then, uh, I, and I should add here too, Jorge Marrero says, I would love a V6, V6 vet if it meant I could finally afford one. <laughs> so there's that issue too. What else you, you got there, Gary? Well, so, so now we're going we're gonna to go to sort of like the, the, the future here a little bit. Um, and speaking of the um, electric Corvette potential. Um, so... IHS Market, we often have Stephanie Brindley on the show, and she works for IHS. Um, they came out with a study, a multi-client study called Reinventing the Wheel this week. And it opens, and I, I think this is, this is rather compelling. The automotive world today is at a critical juncture facing the greatest period of change in its 120-year history. The standard of personal car ownership that has been the status quo for more than a century is being challenged along multiple dimensions by technological, economic, social, and political forces. And they're rolling out and they're basically saying, you know, you've got this, this confluence of things in terms of electrification of vehicles, vehicles becoming autonomous, and regulations that are being promulgated by governments throughout the world. And they're predicting that by 2040... Um, 33% of the vehicles sold in the four major markets of the world, U.S., China, Europe, and India, will be, a third will be EVs, and that's up from 1% today. So, What do you this, mean up from 1%? So, so right now in those markets, yeah. electric vehicle sales represent 1%. Yeah. Okay, they're saying it's going to 33% mm. by 2040. <clears throat> All depends on the infrastructure. 2040, 20 years, that's a long time. I could see that happening in that time frame. And, and you're saying battery electric this, because there's yeah, there's so there, yeah, yeah, there, no it's electric vehicles. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that could happen. But, man, it's not just a charging infrastructure that's got to go in place, which could go in. But a, a stat that astounded me the other day is I, I guess I had known this, but it didn't really hit home. Tesla's Gigafactory which is a $5 billion investment on the part of Tesla. I think it's the second largest building in the world, building under roof, square footage under roof. And uh, in any case, it's gigantic. It can only build enough batteries for 500,000 cars a year. So, man, that means if if electric cars are really going to catch on, we're going to need gigafactories all over the place. Building trades, that's on the way up. If there's a profit to be made, I'm sure the, mm -hmm. the, the companies will step up. Well, it's interesting. So, so Volkswagen just, just announced that they're going to invest uh, 10 billion euro to, to develop 40 electric vehicles in China by 2025. Well, you got to. I mean, the and, Chinese and, are mandating this. I mean, you have no choice in China. You have to do this, or you can buy credits or pay fines. Mm -hmm. It's one or the other. You pay $10 billion to build cars, or you, you, you spend $15 billion in fines and credits. But, I mean, isn't, isn't that, I mean, shocking, the amount of money that they're going to spend? But what's, uh, by 2025? Not so crazy, because, because then they could become the world leaders in producing EVs and start exporting. We, we, we've been waiting for the Chinese export revolution. Maybe it'll be EVs. Could well be. But coming from... Uh, a Volkswagen rather than a Geely, let's say? I guess coming from a number of companies. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, sure, I'm sure Volkswagen is looking at defending its, 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 uh, its uh, stature at, at the top of the heap of manufacturers in terms of vehicle sales. Mm -hmm. So it's certainly going to defend its position. Yeah, I, mean, I, it was... I still think there's a question of customer acceptance, though. I, I'm not convinced that just because you build all these EVs, the, the market's going to go to them. I like EVs. I want to see EVs catch on. I believe they ultimately will.
But when I look at the sales of hybrids, they're 2% of the market. And there's 30 models in the U.S. alone of, of hybrids. There's no range anxiety. You don't have to wait for an infrastructure to be built. The prices of these cars are very reasonable. A base Prius is $24,000. And yet they're 2% of the market. And so when I look at that, I go, whoa, wait a minute. Is the public really going to say, yeah, I'm dumping my piston engine car and going electric? See, but I thought of what Michael Bryan said earlier about the electric CUV that they're developing to be very interesting about how, you know, let's face it, many of these things right now are second cars at most, right? And that they're planning on having something that could replace a gasoline engine car. So just, I mean, so... I mean, I know nothing about what they're developing, but just, just conceptually, just think about this. I mean, let's say that they develop this this electric crossover vehicle that has a range of, say, 325 miles, which is pretty much what a normal automobile gets, and that people can go home and, and uh, they say, hey, we've set this up so it's very convenient to plug into your 110 outlet in your garage that, you know, you use to... Power your weed whacker or whatever. If you have a garage. If you have a garage. And many urban ple- ple- uh, residents don't. Right. But I mean, but, let's say, but I, I would say that there's probably a sufficient number of people who do have garages that would make this very compelling thing. But so, you know, right now, I think that the EV thing is so low because it, it's not because it's an electric vehicle. It's because it's a limited vehicle. Well, but I'm saying, I'm not saying electric. I'm saying hybrids. Right. And there's, there's 30 models of hybrids. There's crossovers, there's passenger cars, there's even a pickup, there's mid-market, there's luxury. There's a tremendous selection. Okay, but if you go into a Toyota dealer and you're going to say, I'm sort of interested in a Prius, but then the guy will say, well, I can sell you a Corolla, which is about the same size as a Prius, and I can throw in this, 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 and this for 24000 bucks." And, oh, by the way, you know, gas is two seventy a gallon, and this thing gets 40 miles per gallon. Why are you going to buy the Prius? Well, then what you're saying is the problem uh, is even more difficult, because on the showroom floor, the, the salespeople are saying, you, you're never going to make your money back. Go buy a Corolla. In fact, what they're really buying now is uh, hybrid RAV4s. I, I think this will be the month where the hybrid RAV4 outsells the Prius. And it's not so much that the RAV4 is going gangbusters, although it's doing very good, the hybrid version. The real reason is the sales of the Prius continue to crater. Mm -hmm. But I'm just saying, look at what's going on in the marketplace. You've got hybrids. They work just fine. They've been around since 1999. There's a great selection of models, and they're 2% of the market. I I think that should cause everybody saying, well, we're all going to go out and buy EVs to sit up and pay attention. I think this is the market telling us something. Well, but when the government says, if you don't have an EV, you're not driving in the center city. Yeah, but how long as an automaker can you afford just to eat all these losses? You, you pour billions into it. Boy, I, I hope they sell great, but I think we better pay attention to what the market is telling us about hybrids. And who knows what's going to happen with EV credits going forward with uh, with the budget and, mm-hmm. and and the legislature. See, but I think that there's a danger. Work. I mean, to your point earlier that we we're waiting for all these cars to come from China. I mean, if China ends up taking the lead in terms of electrification, well, like they have with, with solar panels, for example. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, they've also been accused of dumping, and yes. uh, it'll be real interesting to see the politics of this country. Are we going to? Uh, just sit back and welcome the Chinese in with open arms where they're still forcing us to form joint ventures if we want to build there and if not hitting our products with a 25% tax to sell in their market. Um, if, if I were the Chinese automakers planning to come into America, I'd be planning on making my cars here because I think the, the possibility of the United States going, uh-uh, we're not letting you guys come in like this. Is uh, I, I, I think you better 
have that as part of your planning, that the U.S. could put up some sort of barrier. Well, so Gigli has a foot in the door in South Carolina. It does, and, with its Volvo and, manufacturing and, plant. And you're going to tell me that they're going to fill the market with, with S60 sedans, when sedans are declining? Something else or a couple of the things are going to, going to go in that plant. You know it. Yeah. It's just a matter of time. Hmm. Yep. Not about that. I would agree. So there was a, here, here's a, here's sort of a sad note that um, tech shop, those things that were set up... Um, Ten tech shops exist across the U.S. and four internationally, and uh, they were established in 2006. And they came to Detroit in Allen Park and had a partnership with Ford, and they established that in 2010. And then the following year, they established in California um, with Autodesk, the uh, maker of CAD software and things like that, another partnership. They fell for bankruptcy yesterday. Oh, I mean, sorry to hear that. This is, this is like full-on bankruptcy. I mean, not, not reorganization. This is liquidation. They're liquidation. And, and, you know, and so this whole maker phenomenon that, that, I mean, the auto people are very much a part of, I mean, that, that are finding, you know, that these guys are kind of with these 3D printers and doing things or people going in and, you know, with milling machines and so on and, and, and working in these facilities that uh, it, it seemed to me that this was sort of hearkening to a new renaissance of, of tinkerers, as it were, in this country. And, uh, and this was just a great shot. And they just... They, they fold. No, I hadn't heard that. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm sad to hear it. Uh, I, I think it's reflective of a challenge that there is in this country. It was a great idea in search of a revenue stream, probably. It, it was, but it's also indicative of the problem that we're struggling with with manufacturing in this country right now. Number one problem is trying to get people to come in and work in the factories. And at the highest end, with the skilled trades level, it's, it's the biggest challenge of trying to get people to come in and become skilled tradespeople which, by the way, are some of the best-paying jobs out there in manufacturing. And so the fact that Tech Shop couldn't survive, I think, is almost a reflection of that. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Bummer. So let's not end the show on that note. Tell us something happy, Gary. All right, let's, let's, let's see what I got in here. I got to have to something in here. All right, here, here's a question. And uh, so... Do either of you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? You were, you were mentioning Prius before, and this this sort of this sort of so this Larry David show. I've seen show. the show. I've, I've okay. seen it too. Okay, so so Larry David used to drive a Prius. Okay, so the main character, the crabby guy in in California, would drive a Prius. And for this new season, he came back, and he is now driving a BMW i3. So, what do we make of that? That BMW did some product placement, and Toyota did a very good job, or does it say something about the California moved towards electrification? He needed something u- uglier than a Prius. <laughs> what do you think, John? Well, it's not uglier than a Prius. Clearly, the Prius is uglier. <laughs> no, well, look, I mean, I, I don't know if Larry's trying to make a statement on a show by the car he drives. Certainly, you know, uh, in California, what you drive is so much a reflection mm-hmm. of who you are. But... Uh, Sure, look, California is at the lead in trying to get electrification and battery electrics being mm-hmm. the, the car of choice for everybody in the country. So, yeah, I guess it is. And they're building the hydrogen highway, too, that, uh, and, that, and that Mike was that. referring to earlier. And they're doing that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, BMW is very successful in California, so bringing the hybrid aspect to it is probably a smart thing. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I'm not sure uh, how well they're doing with that whole I-3 and I-8 effort, uh, boy, I, I don't see many of those cars. I don't think the sales are all that great. I commend them for what they do. I mean, this, this all fiberglass thing. and uh, well, yeah, It was a great concept car. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and they actually uh, built a few. And Sandy Monroe, who's been on several of the 500 or 400 shows, excuse me, yeah. um, he, uh, he calls uh, it the modern-day Model T. Yeah. He so, thinks uh, it's that revolutionary. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's a... I don't like the styling per se, but that's in the eye of the beholder. But from an engineering standpoint, the car is brilliant. It's absolutely fantastic. Are you talking about the I3 or the The I3? I3. I3. Oh, the I8 is gorgeous. Uh, You know, all you have to do is be able to get in and out of it. That's another issue. (laughs) And it doesn't drive all that well, being a hybrid, not a pure electric. They should have just made it a pure electric. I thought they did a great job of synthesizing a a V12 engine sound into that thing, which has a three-cylinder it uh, does, but there's a few times where the thing revs up and you go, oh, it sounds terrible. Do you know that you cannot open the hood of that car? Yeah, I know. Only, only a BMW mechanic can. That's right. Really? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And why would you want to look at it? I mean, I can see a bunch of guys, you know, cars and coffee 50 years from now. What's under the hood? Yeah, oh, that orange wire. Doesn't sound like a V12. Yeah. Huh, I know. Yeah, but it, this gets back to what we said uh, we're talking about earlier. I3, brilliantly engineered, brilliantly developed. It's sales proof. They, they struggle to sell these things. So, there you go. There you go. Okay. Let's wrap up show number 400. And we're off next week, right? Because it's Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah, next That's why Thanksgiving. we had the Thanksgiving theme this week. So. Mm-hmm. Well, cool, Gary. We'll do this again in a couple of weeks. Okay. And Ron, thanks so much for joining thanks us. Thanks for today. having me. It's been great having you. And as I always say, I have to thank all of you for having tuned in. Auto Line After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, your journey, our passion. And by Lear, a global leader in automotive seating and electrical systems. Visit our website, Autoline.tv, where you can watch us live Thursday afternoons. Get your daily fix with Autoline Daily and in-depth analysis and interviews with Autoline This Week. There's all that and much more at Autoline.tv. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.